This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast. Episode 276, The Fall of the Celebes and Maluku Islands. Last time, on February 15, 1942, at 6.10 p.m., the battle for Singapore came to a close. The Allies surrendered, and the Japanese had, for their pains, a world-class port. Now it was time for the Empire to gather even more resources for the war effort which is what drove Japanese Prime Minister Tojo to move forward with their war against the Western powers in the first place. And though the conquest of Borneo would give the Japanese Empire much of what it wanted, another prize, in terms of oil and rubber, was now in the Empire's crosshairs, Sumatra. But to understand the Empire's strategy for taking that island, one of the many listed on Operation Number 1, now that American naval power was laid low at Pearl Harbor. First, their victory over the Celebes and Maluku Islands has to be understood. The Celebes, or modern-day Suluasi, wrestled over by the European powers since 1523, came under the control of the Dutch in 1905, as a part of its state colony of the Netherlands East Indies. Besides its concentration of iron ore and nickel, the island's location, think of four peninsulas crammed together, roughly in the middle, between Borneo, Papua New Guinea, and Australia, was the perfect jump-off point for future conquests like Java, Timor, and Bali. Yet, the Celebes' geography offered a challenge to the Dutch in defending it, and to the Japanese in taking it. Most of the island is covered by mountains and or jungle. In fact, the Celebes at the time had about three million people, but there were few towns that were undeveloped, and they were scattered out. The main population centers were on the northeast corner at Manado, which had an airfield, on the island's southwest corner at Makassar, the largest city, so it served as the island's capital, and on the southeast corner at Kendari. To control them was to control the island. Added to this attack would be the capture of the Maluku Islands due east of the northern half of the Celebes. The Malukas is a large archipelago in eastern Indonesia, generally known as the Spice Islands, due to its nutmeg, mace, and cloves. Of the numerous Maluku Islands, roughly in the center of this group, Ambon City, on the island of Ambon, 
roughly level with Kendari on the Celebes, served as the area center, as it was an old spice trading location. But just above Ambon Island, on Saram Island, near its eastern end, at Baolu, was a coveted oil field. Thus the Japanese wanted both, the oil and administrative center, so both islands would be targeted. But again, more than just gathering additional oil reserves, the Celebes and the Maluku Islands, with their ports and airfields, would serve as jump-off points for the conquests of Java and Sumatra, whose defenses were organized by its administrative center, Batavia, in western Java. Sadly, the Celebes Defense Force served as an understatement in terms of inadequate defenses in men and materiel. There were only 10 companies of about 3,100 men, made up of troops from the Royal Netherlands East Indies Army, or KNIL, and local militia. Together, with a few artillery and anti-aircraft units, all were under the command of Colonel Marinus Vuren. Further, this paltry number was divided to protect the three key areas. The Manado garrison, to the northeast, had 1,500 men, under Major Ben Schilmoller, along with two artillery guns and three old 3.7-centimeter naval guns. Schilmoller had to defend two airfields at Lagoan and Mapaget, and the naval base at Tesoka. If he failed in this, his standing orders were to head inland and begin guerrilla warfare. The second major area was the Kendari garrison to the southeast. There were 400 men under the command of KNIL officer Captain F.B. Van Stralen. He also had two anti-aircraft batteries and four armored cars. Lastly, there was the Makassar garrison on the island's southwest corner. There, 1,200 men under Colonel M. Vuren was to protect the capital city. As for the Maluku Islands, the Japanese wanted Ambon Island and its well-developed airbase to serve for future operations. So, no surprise, the Australian government was nervous, as planes from Ambon Island could hit northern Australia. Hence, additional Australian forces would be sent there. Yet the Japanese almost beat those Australian reinforcements to the punch. On December 8th, locally, the day the Pacific War started, Ambon Island was defended by a 2,800-man Malukan Brigade, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Kapitz. These Indonesian colonial troops of the Royal Netherlands East Indies Army were poorly equipped and barely trained. However, there was good news. On December 17th, 1,100 Australians of Gull Force, led by Lieutenant Colonel Leonard Roach, arrived. Along with Gull Force were a few artillery and support units. But as Kapitz was the Dutch commander, he retained his position as the Allied commander overall of the island. And his first problem was the Australian, Lieutenant Roach who took one look at their defenses and knew this was impossible. His complaining got him sacked, and soon a Lieutenant Colonel John Scott took his place. 
The defensive air umbrella over the area was provided by the KNIL Air Service and the Royal Australian Air Force. In truth, the Dutch did not have much to offer, just four Brewster Buffaloes, but two of those were lost on the way. But the Australians sent 12 Lockheed Hudson light bombers. Some of the planes were based at the Laha Airfield on the northern section of Ambon Island, and the others were at Namlia on the nearby island of Beru, due west. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Japanese force tasked with taking the Celebes and Maluku Islands was commanded by Vice Admiral Ibo Takahashi, and his was an ambitious plan, as the several places were to be hit in short succession. The three main locations on the Celebes, Ambon Island, Timor, which is an island further south, and Bali, hard upon the eastern coast of Java to the southwest. As things worked out, these invasions took place at the same time other Japanese forces were landing on eastern Borneo at Tarakan, thus no help would be coming from there. Takahashi's invasion force would be coming from Davao of the southern Philippines, already under Japanese control, but more of that later. Takahashi would use the Sasebo Combined Landing Force as well as the Yokosuka 1st Special Naval Landing Force, but they would be operating as a paratrooper unit, and paratroopers would play a large part in the attack on southern Sumatra. And like on Malaya, Takahashi would be bringing a company of light tanks. The plan was to land invading troops on the northeast corner of the Celebes, near the Manado garrison, on January 11th. Then, some of those same troops would get back aboard their transport ships and go down to Kendari to take that on the southeast corner on January 24th. When those airfields were captured, other Allied locations like Darwin in Australia, Java, and Timor Island would be within reach of an air attack. After Kendari fell, the troops would again re-embark and swing around to the south and west to take Makassar, the island's capital, on the southwest 
corner. Meanwhile, as for the attack on the Moluccas Islands to the east of the Celebes, that would also be overseen by Vice Admiral Takahashi, with the help of Captain Horichi. And this attack would be supported by the aircraft carriers Huryu and Soryu, which had been a part of the Pearl Harbor raid, plus two heavy cruisers, a light cruiser, 15 destroyers, 10 transport ships, two seaplane tenders, five minesweepers, four submarine chasers, and two patrol boats. Not that the invaders believed the Allies could put anything in the water nearby to challenge this fleet, but better to be prudent. But these ships would not make for the Moluccas Islands until after Kendari, on the southeast corner, was taken. That way, this attack's left or western flank and Ambon City would be covered. Like the Celebes invasion, the Moluccas invasion would have overwhelming numbers. 820 airborne troops and 4,500 troops from the 228th Infantry Regiment of the 38th Division. On January 9th, eight transport ships carrying the Sasebo Combined Special Landing Naval Force left Davo with its escorts, who were commanded by a Rear Admiral Rezo Tanaka. Once the fleet was just north of the Manado garrison on January 11th, the two Sasebo Special Naval Landing Forces of some 2,500 men split up as they boarded the smaller ships that would take them to shore. The first unit went to the west coast, near Manado. The second unit, with tanks, went to the east coast and landed near Kema. They were ashore before dawn. With the element of surprise, more numerous troops, and backed by the tanks, the KNIL defenders were quickly overwhelmed. To be sure, the KNIL troops and their local militia put up a stiff resistance. On the western shore, the 338 men fought back and tried to hold the enemy at the beach. But the invaders' larger numbers simply allowed them to send other units around the defenders' lines. The West Coast defenders continued engaging with the Japanese, but then the poor overall defensive plan began to show itself. By 3 p.m., the Dutch troops were nearly out of ammunition. Per their standing orders, the troops began to retreat south, hoping to disappear into the jungle. Over on the east coast at Kema, the attackers came ashore at 3 a.m. and used their three tanks to push aside the defenders. In fact, the going was easier here for the Japanese as they pushed the Dutch troops to the south away from Kema. Still, the defenders did what they could, yet they had no answer for the enemy's tanks. By the afternoon, the Dutch troops on the east coast also started heading south to begin guerrilla operations. But then it got even worse for the Dutch. Seeing that the Japanese were committed to this attack, the native soldiers under Dutch command quit and disappeared into the undeveloped parts of the island, which left the guerrilla warfare over before it had started. But the destruction or capture of the defending troops was not the focus of the Japanese on this day. That would happen as a matter of course. No, it was the airfield at Langoan 
roughly in the center of the peninsula, and the seaplane base at Kakas on the east coast, south of Kema. Those were the real goals, and it only benefited the Japanese all that much more what happened next. A little after sunrise, about 9.30 a.m., 300 Japanese paratroopers from Davo were flown over the fighting around Manado and dropped just south of the defenders' locations. But again, their job was not to catch the retreating defenders near the coastlines, but to capture the airfield further inland at Lagoan and the seaplane base at Kakas. As they were spotted floating down, the defenders counterattacked, despite their worsening situation. The Japanese were about to be reminded of the vulnerability of airborne troops. The fighting continued that day, January 11th. The amphibious Japanese troops pushed the Dutch to the south, while their airborne comrades engaged those defending troops around the airfield and the seaplane base. The fighting thus far had been going well for the attackers, and then a second airborne attack came the next day, January 12th. The area around the northern tip of the peninsula was won by the Japanese. They pushed south, and before the second day of fighting was over, the airfield at Lagoan fell. It had been the last of the Dutch possessions to hold out. Yet the paratroopers had suffered heavy losses while coming down. So, in revenge, they killed many KNIL POWs. By this time, Captain Vandenberg, in local command, had ordered an overall retreat. By mid-January, the northern point, with its few towns and airfields, were in Japanese hands. Of the Dutch defenders still resisting, including Captain Vandenberg, they were eventually taken prisoner on February 20th. But before then, the captain had his men launch several small surprise attacks, which inflicted additional casualties on the Japanese. They, in turn, would again take their revenge on the POWs. With Manado captured, Captain Kunzio Mori and his 1st and 2nd Sasebo units got aboard their transports, protected by their escorts, and headed for Kendari on the southeast corner. Landing near Kandari on January 24th at 4.28 a.m., the invaders wasted no time moving out. Incredibly, the Japanese troops reached the Kandari airfield without any serious resistance. This was due to poor Allied communications. The Kandari defenders were not up to date on the latest events, were caught unawares, and panicked. Before the day was over, the airfield was in Japanese hands. Further, that same day, the rest of Kandari was taken. Most of the Dutch defenders were captured. Still, a few escaped to start guerrilla warfare, which only made life hell for the POWs. Quickly, the habitable parts of the Celebes was coming under Japanese control. The airfield at Kandari was considered one of the best of the Dutch East Indies, and as such, was put to immediate use. Japanese fighters and bombers were soon flying in to start patrols and harass any discovered enemy positions. Meanwhile, the defenders on the island of Anbon to the east had already felt the effects 
of the Japanese desire to control the island. Even before the Japanese landed at Manado, there had been an air attack on Ambon Island. Ten Japanese fighters flew over and destroyed the only two Brewster Buffaloes on the island. The next day, the Japanese were back, and this air raid scored hits on some of the Hudson Light Bombers, still on the ground. The Allied air shield was weakening fast. Then, on January 24th, while the landing at Kandari was taking place, 35 planes from the carrier Huryu attacked Ambon. It was a total success, as the few remaining Australian Hudson bombers were either destroyed or ordered to evacuate. By January 28th, the Japanese could find on the island no Allied naval or air support. So, the day before this confirmation, on January 27th, the invasion fleet of 10 transport ships, which held the Curie 1st Special Naval Landing Force and the Ito Detachment, left Davo. Yet this fleet was spotted, en route, by Australian airmen on January 29th. Not that it mattered, as the last of the island's airplanes had been sent away. Per Dutch orders, the Australian engineers, still on Ambon, destroyed the naval oil reserves, the bomb dumps, the hangars, and other equipment at Laha Airfield, again on the northern half of the island. They also spent their dwindling free time trying to make the airstrip unusable. Before the sun went down on January 30th, enemy ships were spotted near the island's west coast. That same night, assuming they had been spotted, the Japanese wasted no time and launched two invasion groups, one of naval personnel to the north coast of the more northern part of the island near Hitulama, while the men of the 288th Regiment landed on the far southern coast. At Hitulama, the Allied infantry and machine gun crews were easily pushed back. In their hasty retreat, no bridges were destroyed, which allowed the Japanese to continue pushing south, to the point that they soon reached Ambon Bay. The island was now cut in half. The Japanese unit in the north would then turn west to make for the Laha airfield, while the southern attacking unit would seek to gain control of the major population centers nearby, like Ambon City and Halong. As for the amphibious assault in the south, that went as quickly as the northern attack. The Japanese had done their reconnaissance and picked landing spots away from the bay that held many coastal guns. Like at Malaya, they attacked in unexpected places and would advance across land, rather than a direct naval attack that could have been countered by those coastal guns. However, this was a tricky situation for the Dutch and Australian troops, as it was at the airfield and the cities that the defenders had most of their troops. Hence, all their eggs were in relatively few baskets. As such, with little in their way, by the afternoon of January 31st, the Japanese had reached the outskirts of the Laha airfield to the north, while Ambon City to the south was occupied by the quick-moving Japanese units. The one small section of land that connects the two peninsulas of Ambon, near Paso, 
was also taken. So when the Japanese cut the communication lines, the various defenders were isolated and unable to communicate with each other. Still, Lieutenant Colonel Kapitz ordered that the resistance should continue. Yet, in a sad tale of miscommunication and being all too human, around noon on January 31st, Kapitz had moved his headquarters closer to Paso, which had just fallen to the enemy. He, of course, did not know of this. Meanwhile, parts of the northern Japanese unit had pushed down this far south, so Paso was getting hit from two different directions. Now, here comes the event that, to this day, has yet to be explained. Around 6 p.m. that same day, January 31st, as Ambon City was captured, but Lieutenant Colonel Kapitz is to the east of the city, a Dutch motorcycle and a sidecar was driving down the road in between Ambon City and Paso, waving a white flag. It was heading east towards the Japanese at Paso. As it was heading towards the Japanese positions, the Dutch troops that saw this assumed that Kapitz had ordered a surrender. But he had not. Indeed, he would not have been able to tell anyone anything as he could not communicate with anyone outside of his headquarters. To this day, no one knows, or will admit, who ordered the cyclist to carry the white flag. Either way, the Japanese did not respond to this low-tech plea of surrender. Kapitz was eventually made aware of it by word of mouth, so he and his second-in-command assumed the fighting would continue, as the Japanese had not responded. But when the company commanders left this meeting at headquarters and went back to their men, they were already POWs, as the Japanese had moved forward based on the white flag, and the defenders had given up based on the white flag. The fighting near the island's natural bridge was over. Ambon City and the territory east of it, i.e. the eastern half of the southern peninsula, fell into Japanese hands. There, on the southern peninsula, the only area still in Dutch control was the western half, which is where Lieutenant Colonel Scott had his headquarters. The next day, February 1st, the remaining defenders in the south spent the day moving away from the Japanese troops, but before they could go too far, their backs were soon against the beaches. Overall, Commander Kapitz surrendered, and he sent a note to Lieutenant Colonel Scott to his west to tell him to surrender. But due to poor communications, this message was not received for two more days. Thus, Scott, still defiant, lined up his men and waited to be attacked. By February 2nd, the Laha airfield was completely surrounded. That morning, the Special Naval Landing Force launched their attack. But it wasn't just an infantry battle. Gull Force, made up of Australian and Dutch forces, found that enemy fighters were strafing them, enemy bombers were targeting them, and enemy ships were bombarding them. So, it will come as no surprise that by 10 a.m. of that day, only 150 Australians and a few KNIL troops were still fit enough to resist.
as it would have been suicide to stay in the fight. They were ordered to surrender by Major Mark Newberry in local command. When the sun rose on February 3rd, the Japanese flag could be seen flying over the Laha airfield. This was reported to the ranking commander, Lieutenant Colonel Scott, and he, being on the western end of the southern peninsula, with his back to the beach, with no planes or ships to assist or to help him evacuate, decided to surrender. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Getting back to the Celebes, by the time Anbon Island was taken, the Japanese were ready to take the last major holdout on the Celebes, Makassar, on the southwest corner. On February 6th, the invasion force left Kendari, and by the 9th, 2,500 special naval landing troops came ashore just south of Makassar. Upon reaching land, they immediately began pushing north, coming upon a guarded bridge. The fighting there was short, but the defenders on the bridge saw many enemy troops and reported this to Colonel Marinus Buren. He did not hesitate to order a pullback further north. Heading into the mountains, which hopefully would buy them some time, and was hopefully a no-go for the tanks, they made for Jamba, several miles away. The capital city had fallen. However, the Japanese knew they could not leave an enemy force free in the field. So the attackers had their tanks head east to the coast, and they would then turn north, but bypass the Dutch. They would then turn around and hit the defenders from the north. Meanwhile, the invading infantry would use the same path as the retreating defenders and attack them from the south. To their credit, Colonel Varenne and his men held out for several days, but it was only a matter of time and supplies. During the night of February 27th, Colonel Varenne decided it was time to retreat again. Amazingly, they were able to pull out of their current fight and head further north, making for Erikan. There waiting was another detachment of Dutch troops. But Varin and his men never made it. Dealing with their wounded, the Dutch were caught up to, surrounded, and captured the next day, February 28th. Meanwhile, at Aaron Khan, which held about 300 troops, they heard that their commander had been captured, so surrendered themselves. The Battle of the Celebes was over. The way was clear for the Japanese to attack Timor and Bali. Though the battle for these possessions had only lasted 50 days, the Japanese would go on to take other smaller islands, and the Allied naval support had been chased away. The Japanese navy still lost men at Ambon, as some of their vessels had struck Allied mines. In retribution, 300 Australian and Dutch POWs were killed near Laha Airfield. Of those killed, Commander Scott, 
Major Newberry, and all their officers were included in this. Yet all the Japanese commanders involved, who survived the war, would eventually be found guilty of war crimes and executed. As for how the attack on Minado affected the Battle of Sumatra, as the known Dutch airfield there was fairly inland, the Japanese could not simply land troops at the beach and rush and capture it. Further, though there were major rivers that led to the airstrip, that would require too much time fighting upriver. No, it would be airborne troops that were expected to play a key role in the conquest of southern Sumatra. Yet, many of the attacking airborne troops had died at Manado, so whatever was going to happen in Sumatra had to be better planned and better executed, or else the invaders would be looking at another pile of their comrades' bodies. Epilogue. With Ambon Island captured, the war came to Australia. On February 19, 242 Japanese aircraft bombed Darwin, the capital of the Northern Territory, in two separate raids. Targeted were ships in the harbor and two airfields to make sure the Allies would not interfere in the coming invasion of Timor and Java. The first raid was composed of 188 aircraft from four Japanese aircraft carriers. Of those aircraft, 36 of them were Zero fighters. The rest were light bombers or dive bombers. At 9.35 a.m., Father McGrath on Bathurst Island and a coast watcher sent a message of the planes by pedal radio. This message made its way to the Royal Australian Air Force operations two minutes later, but no general alarm was given until 10 a.m., as the RAAF officers believed that what the priest had spotted were American P-40s. The Japanese bombers were over Darwin at 9.58 a.m. The attack lasted for 30 minutes. The three warships were sunk, along with six merchant vessels. Ten other ships were damaged. All but one of the P-40s on the ground were destroyed. At least 21 laborers were killed. The attackers lost no more than five aircraft. The second raid of 54 land-based planes, all medium bombers, reached Darwin just before noon. This time, the response was better. Still, the air raid sirens only went off two minutes before the enemy attack started. The bombers split up into two groups, but both went for the RAAF base at Darwin, just from different directions. Unlike the Pearl Harbor attack, both groups dropped their bombs at the same time, as was deemed the best way to attack. Even worse for the Australians, their defective fuses left their anti-aircraft gunners impotent and enraged. The bombers left around 12.20 p.m. Like the American West Coast after Pearl Harbor, many in Darwin assumed this air raid would be followed up by an invasion. Many locals went away and never came back, even after the war ended. 